episode 95, Guidelines for PRP, RFA, Stem Cells, Neuromodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trostclair, and today, we're Dr. Brian Rich Perspective. During 2017 and 2018, Podcast Awards nominated host as we get a behind-the-curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Thanks for tuning in. I've been hinting at it. Episode 100 is coming up. We're going to have new music that day. And actually, you get to preview it at the end of this episode. Well, today, we have a Dr. Brian Rich, MD, three practices in Oklahoma. He specializes in non-surgical as well as regenerative medicine. If you've had questions about what exactly is PRP versus stem cells, what is you know radiofrequency ablation, kyphoplasty, uh, epidural steroid injections, if you have any of those types of questions, he is going to answer them today. How? Why would you do it? Who's a good referral? What's the risk? What's the benefit? What should you look out for to not do? All those types of questions are going to be answered. I'm really excited. He even drops some names of uh, some of the head honchos in this field of regenerative medicine so that you can look up more papers on PubMed. I guarantee you, you're going to learn something today, so let's get into it. Show notes can be found at adoptorsperspective.net slash 95. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China and Oklahoma, today on the show, we have a doctor who did family medicine, then sports medicine residency at the University of Oklahoma in Tulsa, then decided to get his fellowship in interventional pain. So he's super skilled in fluoroscopy-guided procedures, musculoskeletal ultrasound-guided procedures, and he's one of the original physicians as part of the Orthobiologist Consortium, which are the group that deals with the ethics on PRP and stem cells. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brian Rich. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to have you on. Seems to be, at least in chiropractic land, PRP, stem cell stuff is getting really popular. Then you got your radio frequency uh, specialty to go along with that. So big thing, you know, what? give us a little bit of the background on how'd you end up, you know, you're a sports guy for sure, endurance athlete, I believe. And then um, it seems like you kind of maybe went a, a roundabout way <laughs> to, to get into the, to the pain. Now, talk about that before we jump into everything else. I definitely did. I actually started off in family medicine. That's a little secret not a lot of people know. Um, I started out as a just basic family medicine in a residency that was guided and geared towards orthopedics and sports medicine. Um, and I was destined to do a sports medicine fellowship from the day I walked in the door uh, as a family medicine resident. As a matter of fact, my first day as a family medicine resident, I was already doing an orthopedic procedure. So it was pretty quick. But um Moved on from that and then did my sports medicine fellowship in uh, OU Tulsa, which covered quite a bit of different teams at all levels, from the pro college all the way down to high school, and just really fell in love with taking care of orthopedic injuries. And in part of that fellowship, there was some interventional pain associated with it. Uh, what I didn't like much about the treatment process was there wasn't really many options as far as treatment. And this is back in 2007. So we didn't really do much. We died, did a lot of diagnosing. And if there was ever an issue or something that needed to be fixed, it was really, it was either surgical or not. If it was not surgical, a lot of times it meant the patient didn't get better. So where we are today in interventional pain and really with regenerative medicine, which 
some of the early people that started out in regenerative medicine before me were really doing PRP all the way back in 2005 and you know, even before that. Um, a lot of guys will tell you that they've been doing regenerative medicine for a long time with prolotherapy, and that's true. Um, that's true. You don't want to forget about that. But that's really where I am today. I mean, I'm really excited about what I do today because I actually feel like I'm actually helping people non-surgically. I think that we truly have a non-surgical option to treat things. I mean, I get it in situations where something requires surgery, but today I feel like we've got a lot of options now that keep patients from having to have surgery. Well, this will be fun to have a conversation a little bit later in the show about like the opioid crisis, uh, failed back surgeries, and why aren't maybe more people being referred to people like yourself in different areas of the country versus just going underneath the knife. Like if it's protocol to uh, try out all these different options first, and then you can finally get the surgery or if it's still allowed to just skip and then do something more invasive. So, but let's, let's do a little bit of definitions. It's good to be all on the same page when we're talking about this stuff. PRP, stem cell things, radio frequency, ablation, uh, even neuromodulation, vertebroblasty. If you could take a minute and kind of, you can give us a little bit of the doctor terms, also a little layperson. Most of the audience is going to be doctors. But what are we talking about here so that we know uh, we're not getting confused? Sure. Everything there you just mentioned is non-surgical approaches to to trying to treat an individual or, si- or situational problem. Um, every one of those things all combined you know, really is almost two or three days of lecturing to explain it completely, but I'll, but I'll, I'll, I'll go through them pretty quick. Uh, realistically, uh, starting off with PRP, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, and what we're doing there is you're taking the sort of the super concentrated part of the platelets that's being spun down from a centrifuge, and you're really deriving the growth factors from the platelets. Platelets have a lot of growth factors, a lot of plasma proteins have growth factors, and you're re-injecting it or injecting it into an area that is damaged or, or, or injured. Ideally, you're injecting it into an area under specific guidance so you know where you're going. You're not injecting these things blindly, so to speak. You're, you're putting it in a specific area. So that means you've had to diagnose that area. Same thing with stem cells, just a little bit more concentrated. Now, here's going to be the warp that everybody's going to hear from stem cells. We're not injecting stem cells. We're injecting signaling cells that's bringing the stem cells to the area, to that area. That's uh, uh, Dr. Kaplan, PhD out of Case Western, who was really the father of regenerative medicine, has a really good lecture uh, that he gives just about every year at Toby, which is the National Regenerative Medicine Conference, talking about MSCs are not mesenchymal stem cells. They're now called mesenchymal signaling cells. And he'll tell you he hates that because he's the one that came up with mesenchymal stem cells. So there you go. Um, so those are those two things. Ideally, you're injecting those in the targeted area under guidance. And then you're talking about radio frequency, which is really taken off. Um, if you're following good guidelines and diagnosing, uh, getting good, doing good blocks, getting good results with your blocks, uh, identifying the area, you can take a radio frequency probe and put it at that area under really good guidance and good and good control and, and sort of help you know, neurally ablate that nerve that's causing the pain. Now, you're not fixing the problem, but you're improving function. This is going to be an option for patients that are a little bit older. Uh, We're doing it a lot in spine, whether it's neck, thoracic, lumbar, or even sacral. 
Uh, also, we're doing it in knees. We're doing it in hips. Uh, we're doing it actually uh, in the Baxter's nerve in the foot. Uh, so it's really getting a lot. Now we're actually we're getting ready to start really even moving. The next thing that you're going to hear about here in the next two or three years, this is a little bit of a fast forward. You're going to hear about it in the basal vestibular nerve and the vertebral body, uh, where where the pain is really thought to generate. And so that's that's on the, that's on the horizon. Um, Kyphoplasties, vertebral plasty augmentation is essentially the the same mindset of the basal vertebral nerve that causes the pain in the vertebral body. You get a vertebral fracture, it's unstable, it's very painful. Um, the, the data definitely documents that there's a downrolling spiral in, uh, in morbidity in a patient's lifespan. Do not believe the 2009 New England Journal of Medicine paper that says that there's really no benefit. That's been very much disproven. Mm. Uh, with that being said, um, you know, you're basically stabilizing that vertebral body and you have a nerve plexus inside that vertebral body that's very rich in nerve supply that's causing that pain. So I think I went through most of them there for you. I think I blew through them pretty fast. But that's that's all you just mentioned, including peripheral nerve stimulation, uh, which is one of my favorite things. I wanted to, I, I do a lot of peripheral nerve stimulation, which is new. Uh, and then, of course, spinal cord stimulation. So neuromodulation, whether it's spinal cord stimulation or peripheral nerve stimulation, is Definitely the, one of the fastest growing areas of interventional pain medicine uh, or management, rather, because there's so much we can do with it. And this is this plays right into my wheelhouse because I do come from an orthopedic background and I do and I focus a lot on musculoskeletal medicine as well as floral guided. So I, I do a lot of peripheral as well as spinal cord stimulation as well. So tell us through when would you use a, a peripheral nerve versus the, the radio frequency? That's a really good question. <laughs> so, and, that, and that question is, is definitely answered um, based on the patient. Okay. So the best way I can answer that is just really kind of take you to the patient encounter the issue. So if you're thinking peripheral, you're thinking a specific area like, like a genicular nerve around a knee or, or something along those lines. You're thinking that. You're thinking of a cluneal nerve around the hip. Uh, you're thinking those types of things. If you're thinking of peripheral nerve stimulation, you're thinking of a specific nerve. You need to be targeting a specific nerve. If you can target that nerve, you can stimulate it. Um, and that's those are not my words. Those are Dr. Andrea Trescott's words. So I just stole that from and her. And that's going to stop the pain. Well, it's going to neuromodulate the pain. It's going to try to desensitize the pain. I'll give you an example. I had a 95-year-old patient that I just did a peripheral nerve stimulator. It was suprascapular nerve, non-operable shoulder. Nobody would do shoulder surgery on him because there really wasn't a surgery for him. He was having intense pain. Life, his lifestyle wasn't great uh, because his shoulder was just in pain. That's all he cared about. We did a suprascapular um uh, peripheral nerve stimulator, that's the latest picture I put up on, on LinkedIn. And uh, his pain went from a 10 to a 1. And he was, you know, and so he he can't get his perm. We're getting ready to do I'm going to do his perm here uh, next week. We just finished his trial. But that's that's the second one of those I've done in a couple of weeks. So I do a lot of them. But radio frequency ablation, you can't radio frequency ablate the suprascapular nerve. Uh, you can you you can you know do radio frequency ablation in the genicular nerve and the knee hip and some of those areas but if i have someone that the interesting cases are the ones where someone has knee pain 
And we've seen patients, you know, we have failed back surgery syndrome, but we also should come up with failed total knee arthroplasty syndrome and right. failed total hip arthroplasty syndrome. So now we have someone that's had a replacement and their pain didn't go away. And now what? So now the orthopedic surgeon is a little upset because now they're, they don't, they don't, they can't do a steroid injection anymore, which was kind of all their go-to. And they send them to me and, and generally I'll look at it and, you know, it's a, it's a neuropathic pain problem. So you can ablate that and they may get good relief or you can offer them a trial of a peripheral nerve stimulator first before you neurally destruct or destroy anything and see if they like that. And then you give them the option. Do you care about having a stimulator in or do you want to just try an ablation and go on with your life and come back a year, a year and a half later and do it again and go from there. So I give it, I sort of throw it back to them and give them the lifestyle choice options and really kind of explain both options. All right. So I'm hearing radio frequency is pretty much, you're not going to do motor nerves. It's better for like purely sensational nerves. Like the, you'll uh, never do, you never ablate a motor nerve in a radio. You'll never, ever, ever do a motor nerve radio frequency ablation ever. Good. Good, because the ones on the facet joints in the spine, those, you know, this the recurrent meningeal. It's not really doing a lot except indicating like. Yeah, it's basically it's a medial branch coming off the dorsal primary ramus, which is purely sensory. Okay. So that's in the spine. Now that's the then, then when you get down in the sacrum, it's the lateral branch, but all the way up to the neck, you know, all the way up to the third occipital nerve, which is the one that causes cervicogenic headaches really bad. So you have somebody that's younger has you know cervical genic headaches, tension headaches, if you will, and oh. they don't get and they don't get relief, if they don't get facet joint mediated relief, you know, then you can go that route. You know, you got you have some of your younger patients that have facet pain. You don't want you don't want to be thinking about radiofrequency ablation in a younger patient like, you know, twenty to thirty, maybe even forty. We're talking about patients that are in their fifties, sixties, seventies with bad facet joint hypertrophy. Mm. And you you know, even in your area, you know, you can do manipulation there and it's just not getting any better. And that's because the neuropathy of the nerve, those joints are so sensitive and it's just it really you just you're you're fighting a losing battle. Those okay. are the bread those are the bread and butter spine radio frequency ablation patients, and there are a ton of them. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of these patients have been operated on. So now that's now you've got failed back surgery syndrome on top of it. They've had a fusion. Their facet joints are even worse off. And those are the bread and butter. And then you flip over into the knees where you have somebody with really bad osteoarthritis. Maybe they're not a really good candidate. And I, I mean, I put I have one patient I put up on LinkedIn that had two knee replacements in the same knee. Whoa. And we put, we put a PNS in her and her pain, you know, from a 10 to a 1. And she was a young, small rancher that was very active. And now she's out going again so you know these the thing that what we have to start talking to patients about or start talking to people about are what are we fixing when we're doing surgery Mm -hmm. if you're fixing something that only surgery could fix i get it have at it but if you if you're fixing something with surgery that's not really a guess that's not really the best option so and with the with the rf it sounds like you said it kind of can come back because the nerves are able to regenerate Without question, now, nerves, sensory nerves, peripheral nerves, peripheral nerves regenerate. So an RF is not forever. Uh, I have seen some RF cases that have gone out for, for four years, 
which when I saw that patient, he wanted another RF. I was like, oh, here we go. If I don't get this guy to four years, he's going to, which, you know, generally, I mean, though they can come back as short as nine months and they, they can go out to two years, but the average is about a year to 18 months. Did they grow back with scar tissue to where it's harder to get the same results? Yeah, I can. And, and, you know, and then, so, you know, you, you have to be somewhat mindful of that when you're doing a revision, the revisions are a little bit harder, but from what I typically see in my hands when I'm doing a revision on somebody, if it's not the patient I did initially, I, I, do, I follow pretty strict guidelines in doing my RF and the way that it was taught, sort of this national standard, and I get a pretty good lesion on it, so I, I, I use, my results are usually pretty good. Now, if you start with RF, maybe you do, say, two, three rounds. Let's say two rounds, and you're like, man, it's coming back. It didn't last as long. Now what? I'm only 57. At that point, can you do a PNS? Depends on where it is, and I have done that with a patient. I did that with a patient where, I, where there, you know, some RFs, are this, there was a patient that one I was telling you about with the total. You know, when you have a total, you know, your the genicular nerves do not necessarily live in the same spot where they're supposed to live around the knee. Yeah. And I've actually taken this particular patient, went and identified her genicular nerve under ultrasound, went into the OR, did an RF right at that spot, came back and RF still was refractory and didn't work. And then we ended up going to PNS on her and she got complete relief. So, you know, you have to, you know, not everybody's the same. You have to figure out what's going to work for them. But where we are now with minimally invasive or interventional medicine, uh, we're thinking about things to fix the problem because you're right, which you kind of alluded to earlier. I'm the guy that people send patients to to get them off their opioids or they can't prescribe them anymore. The PNS, do you have like a little, is it like a little TENS unit or is it the size of like a pacemaker? Can you feel it inside you? Is it battery replaceable? So the peripheral nerve stimulator that I use, the company that I, that I typically use, the, their stimulator is, is completely buried. It's a lead. The whole stimulator itself is, is a lead. And uh, what, what you do is you wear, you put, like, if, let's, say we're, let's say you're talking about the knee. You, okay. Like if you have, you have two, you have, you know, like, it just depends on where the block worked on the patient, where the block was the most effective, where the genetic, I don't, I don't always, I don't put all of them in. I put them in where the, where the mononeuropathy is, where the pain is, whether that's one lead or two leads. Hmm. Um, but let's say we have somebody that's had inferior medial and superior medial genicular nerve mononeuropathies, and we're going to put a stimulator on that side. The lead itself just goes straight in. You bury it, and you, and then the, and then you, and it's just the lead. It's got a battery associated inside the lead, and then you wear a very small little, something smaller than an iPhone that's really paper thin and you put it, you could put it like in a knee brace or something like that, where for eight to 10 hours a day that gives you the stimulation that you need uh, to help with your pain. You don't have to wear it at night. So you just, you just put it on the top. So there's not the generator buried underneath the skin like you would see in a spinal cord stimulator. Now in a spinal cord stimulator, yes, you, in mo in, you could use the same company for the for the for the, the I use with peripheral, but most have a generator that you bury in the skin. But peripheral is not like that. So the patient doesn't feel it. So you you could have somebody maybe wearing this little brace underneath their pants. You would never know, and they're able to kind of do what they're doing. Yeah, correct. And like in a super scapular, obviously that's up on the shoulder. You would sew you would sew that little battery into uh, 
or sew that little uh, generator into like a T-shirt. They wear the shirt. Like these patients, you know, you're talking about a non-surgical shoulder and somebody who's older. You know, you're not you're not talking about somebody that's going to, you know, that's going to be out, you know, throwing shock puts or something like that. So, you know, they're going to wear that. It's going to give them the relief they need and they go on about their day. And you're talking about something, an option that they don't have to take any medication for. It takes care of their problem. Wow. So let's jump into maybe the younger crowd. We're 20 to 20 to 50. Sounds like that most of what we're talking about is kind of like the older crowd. So we're young, we're athletic. Uh, we blew our, our meniscus out. Maybe our shoulder just has some chronic uh, pain from weightlifting injury, uh, something like that. Are we talking PRP for this type of stuff? Yeah. Now you're flipping the script completely. You're you're changing. You're turning. You're going from the back of the book to the front of the book, and you're talking about nothing but regenerative medicine at that point. You want to be thinking about regenerative medicine. You want to be thinking about diagnosing it accurately, precisely, what's the problem, what's the real problem. You know, one thing that's nice about ultrasound and, you know, and I'm the training that I've had with the ultrasound and, and I mean, I've, I've been using it for a long time, is it's like a dynamic MRI. So you take a shoulder, like you just said, you know, you can, you can basically with a good musculoskeletal ultrasonographer can look at that and say, hey, look, you know, your problem, your issue right here is your suprascapular and your subscapularis. you got a partial tear in there. I can access that, and I can either do it with bone marrow concentrate, which is stronger than PRP, and I can get that, and I can hit that really well, or we could do PRP, or we could do prolotherapy, we a lot of options, and that's what you want to be thinking about. Especially, you know, I mean, if you've got a really bad, complete, retracted rotator cuff tear, you don't have a choice. It is what it is, unfortunately. And I mean, it, it's there. You can't you can't grow space. So you, you, if you have something that's at like fifty percent non-retracted, you know. And of course, we could talk about all that. But Don Buford, who's an orthopedic surgeon uh, out of Dallas, is doing a lot. Is doing a really cool study on partial rotator cuff tears and treating it with just bone marrow concentrate and regenerative medicine. And then, you know, you, you get seen a lot of results in that. You see that with shoulders, maybe knee, like you said, maybe a disc, you know, somebody you want to put, you know, somebody's younger, you know, they've got a partial, like an annular tear with a disc. You, you know, a lot of people, including myself, are doing PRP injections in the disc. Uh, Greg Lutz really kind of started this out of New York and he still uses uh, PRP. I asked him one day. I said, "Greg, you know, why don't you use, why don't you use bone marrow concentrate? It's stronger." And his response was, "I mean, you know, the smartest guys in the world always have the best responses." He's like, "Because PRP works, why change?" Oh. So, you know, you're just like, "Okay," you know. I mean, and so you can't go against that. You know, he's right. You know, and uh, so there's there's that. And uh, but yeah, you want to be thinking more of the regenerative medicine. Like you said, if you have a spot where you're in a shoulder. Man, you gotta, you just gotta get in there and have a big old surgery. Is it common to say, "Hey, doc, could you right before you're finished throw in a bunch of PRP so that while it's healing, it's got the regenerative cells in there?" Very common. Very okay. common. As a matter, as a matter of fact, that that actually is paid for by insurance companies. In that scenario. Uh, yeah, in that scenario, yes, it is paid for. Whereas avoiding surgery. And keeping somebody to go in, and here we, you know, we, we can, backwards, we backwards, yeah. man. <laughs> we we can have this conversation forever. That's like whoever makes these decisions on on payment, but but that procedure, yes, that's very common. A lot of orthopedic surgeons have been doing that for a long time. Doctor Hernandez uh, out of France really kind of started that several, several, several years ago, 
if you're interested in regenerative medicine or anybody listening that's interested in regenerative medicine, you know, I mean, basically those two names, Dr. Kaplan and Dr. Hernigo are the two guys. If you just go Google them, you're going to get a good head start in regenerative medicine. If they're ever talking at any talk or anywhere, you need to stop and listen. So um, those two guys really, that, that Dr. You know, Dr. Hernigo really started that with doing, he's doing, you know, in condylar regenerative medicine where he's just going straight into the femoral condyle for osteonecrosis, you know, um, avascular necrosis going straight into the condyle, injecting stem cells in. And, and in France, they can't concentrate it. So you can't, you have to, you have to draw out a ton of concentrate. You have to draw it up. I mean, you, he may have to do, you know, eight or nine, in, you know, uh, aspirates on each side of, of, in the pelvis, whereas in the United States, we can do one, maybe two. We can get about 12 cc's of highly concentrated uh, mesenchymal, uh, you know, cells. So, or you can do fat, depending on whatever, whatever direction you choose to go. But Well, it seems like they would not practice in France. It's like, let's just go to the next country, take a train over. Because it seems like that'd be a lot more invasive and painful. Well, you know, it's funny too. But I mean, it is, and they're doing it, and they've been doing it for a little bit longer, and they've got good data on it for people like that. But you know, you would, you 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 often wonder. You think, God, if they could let them concentrate what they get, can you imagine what they're getting? And and in the United States, the FDA will not let you uh, grow it. So that's why you see some of these clinics and. The Caymans or Bahamas and stuff like that, or, or Mexico, you fly out of the United States, you grow your own uh, mesenchymal stem cells, and, and, then, and then you get a really high concentrate, and you inject that back in. So maybe that'll change eventually, who knows, but you know, the data, I think, has to support everything, and that's really where it's all driven. All right, let's talk about the negative first. Well, I don't know if there's that many negatives towards it. It's always a surgery. Anything can go wrong, I guess, but... When we're talking PRP, it seems to me it's like, all right, this is the option for uh, the sports crowd. I'm a chiropractor. A lot of physical therapists listen to this. You know, we're seeing a lot of these younger people. If you don't hit the right spot, if, even if you do hit the right spot, are there any the bad results that could happen, something that we should be mindful of? Because once you, you know, once you inject it, it's like, oh, no, it's injected. I can't go back. You know, it's like a surgery. You can only do surgery one time. You know, then no, things have changed. I think, I think the negatives – there, there, there are some absolute negatives that you were kind of mentioning there, and there's some relative negatives in there. I mean, first of all, I mean, let's just take the United States, for example. You know, you're, you're driving down the road. You see a billboard that says, you know, come, we'll regrow your knees. All you got to do is come in and give us $10,000, and you're in good shape. And somebody walks in, and they never draw anything up. They never take any of your, any of your blood. They just walk in, and they just they inject what looks to be like blood into your knee. You're not even sure where it came from. And then, oh, by the way, we had a little bit left over. We're going to start an IV and give it to you that way. Well, you know, that's become really popular, and that became popular because of marketing, you know, really good marketing. And so it really got everyone's attention, and that's really kind of the amniotic cord blood mentality where we're going to give you all these these stem cells. The only problem is they're not alive, you know, and they're they're not yours. So you have to really ask yourself, do you want – Someone else's, you know, concentrate injected in your body. You know, you have no idea really where that comes from. That's what. You know, that's sort of a relative negative, an absolute negative, or something like the case that we saw down in Florida recently, where a clinic decided that they were going to inject some amniotic cord blood in someone's macula to try to to try to treat macular degeneration. 
And what they did is just made them fully on blind. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, that's, and then of course the carrying on to that is someone doing something to try to do some type of regenerative medicine treatment because someone's going to walk in and pay for it. And that's really where the orthobiologist consortium comes from. It's an orthoethics consortium of, of physicians that are doing it ethically. And, and then really that the, the broad strokes of, of that is don't practice outside your treatment area or your practice or your training area and, and do whatever it is that you're doing. Do it with precise guidance as much as possible. So I'm orthopedics and, and interventional pain. Anything that I do, if it's a disc, I'm going to do it under fluoroscopy and make sure I go to the right part of the disc. If it's a shoulder, I'm going to do it under you know, I'm going to do it under ultrasound and with maybe with some guidance with, with fluoro, but, but mostly ultrasound and then, and then various areas. You know, I've had patients come in and said they had cystic fibrosis and COPD and pulmonary fibrosis. And, you know, there's some clinics that are doing stem cells to try to treat that. Can I do that? I said, I'm not a pulmonologist. And so, you know, I get it. I'd be interested to hear the data on that. But but those are really the, the, the negatives, you know. I think I think if you're you're doing any kind of regenerative medicine treatment, you know, be real leery of of the of, of people just over marketing. You have to market some to get to get you know for people to know about who you are. But I think any physician that's taking care of you is going to have some physician with some street cred that has some background. It's you just need to do patients. People need to do a little bit of. Of research on who they're who they're who's injecting these things into them. I'm hearing make sure somebody is taking your own blood and that you're having to reschedule maybe a week or so out to get it reinjected. That's the step one. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. All you got to do is sit down and get injected. That's probably not going to be your blood. Yeah, that's right. And so okay. if you but see that that let me let me clarify that. So when in the United States you can the FDA this is really interesting. The reason why regenerative medicine is not regulated is because there is a part of regulation that they've already regulated by, and I can't remember right off the top of my head, so I'm going to bungle this, but they've regulated, one agency has regulated regenerative medicine, and you can't have two different agencies regulating the same area. So physicians can take blood, spin it down, get the concentrate, take um bone marrow concentrate, spin it down, get the concentrate, and then re-inject it back into someone where they deem necessary as long as they do it in one sitting and do it right there. So that's in the okay. United States. Now, if you take if – if I go to Mexico, give them my blood or give them my bone marrow concentrate, they, I come back in two weeks and they grew it and made it hyper-concentrated. That's, that's another thing. What I'm saying is, is that be real careful of getting something injected into you that's not you. Okay. It's that that's the big thing. Now, and if they don't do guided, it just means it may not be very effective because they missed the spot that actually should have been done. Yeah, some of these people are some of these patients are going in paying five, ten thousand dollars to do these two procedures. First of all, I don't charge that. Number one, um, and I mean, I, that's just not fair. Thank I mean, you. You know. You know, uh, because I mean, it's just not, I mean, it's that And I mean, you know, and I, I'm going to use Don Buford again. He goes, why am I going to charge somebody something that costs more than a total hip replacement that I, I only have two or three years of data of benefit. Mm. And that's a good point. And I, and I flipped that back around saying, so if you're, we're injecting disc and we only know for our facets, 
because we can do facet injections to try to help regenerate them. And we only have about two years of data. I mean, I, that's, I mean, I've done some RFs that lasted longer than two years and they did that and that and insurance paid for that. Mm. That being said, you know, the, the, the big, some of these patients are going in and they're getting, and they're paying a lot of money and they're, and, and they're, and they have somebody that's drawn all this up, concentrating this down and they're injecting it back in. And I've actually asked people, I said, okay, where'd you inject it into? Well, I injected it in the shoulder. Okay. In the rotator cuff. Well, okay. Where in the rotator cuff? Well, in the, well, how do you know? And, and when there's a really good study that was put out not too long ago that showed what a blind injection looked like. Where they where they st- where they put a needle in and then under ultrasound and then put and then the, the the doctor who was really good put the they said where is it and the doctor said well this is where it is in the knee put the ultrasound down it was nowhere near it Oof. and and the majority of the time it was in the anterior fat pad in the knee and then there was that same study where they did the same thing where they were going under under direct guidance with like a, an arthroscope and it wasn't even was it was worse and. And there are office-based arthroscopic procedures now you can use if, that, if you're not a good ultrasound guy. There's an ultrasound. There's, I mean, you just, you just need to have good guidance. You have to put things in under precise guidance. And that's really where the Interventional Orthopedics Foundation really has their credence. And that's, that's a, that's a, that, there's anybody that's an inter, that you know, calls themselves at some level an interventional, interventional orthopedics physician understands what that is. So I'm hearing... Some of these doctors are probably being cheap and being lazy by not purchasing the equipment necessary and maybe hiring someone if they're not good at it to be like, yeah, doc, you're in the spot that you said you wanted to be in. So if you're going to do it, it's like go find someone like yourself who's going to spend the extra time, money, energy to do it right and uh, not just halfway do it. Right. And I'm and I'm not so much of an in your face type position. I mean, I, I, I do it my way. I try to do it the best way possible. If somebody comes up with an even better way, I'm going to see it. And if they can prove to me that this is where it needs to be. But then there's something like an ultrasound. I can find the lesion. That's where the lesion is. Put that needle. Exactly. And I've actually had some, some discussions with some physicians where we sat and talked about it. And we went on a little bit about it. And I said, look, I get it. You know, you have good confidence in knowing where you think that needle is. I'm telling you, data proves that some of the best physicians are not where they where they think they are. But that's you. I'm me. I'm just going to make sure I put it in the right spot. You know, as a as a chiropractor, I, I smile because we have our own people. When we do our studies. We're like, you know, they're palpating the back. And they're like, where do you think you are? I'm at L3. I'd give my mm-hmm. firstborn. You're like, dude, yeah. you're on L1. And they're like, oh, right. my gosh. You know, we only focus on one area, 30 years, and you still can't pick the exact location. Sure. And- I, I don't want to throw a certain group of people under the bus, but that, I, I give them a hard time all the time. But there's, there's back in the – some of the guys were doing some, some, you know, guided injections when they were doing prolo. And, you know, they did everything via a palpation standpoint. Then they would draw out, like, the bones, and then they would start palpating all this stuff. Well, I mean, I get it from a palpation standpoint. But you have somebody that may be like in Oklahoma, you know, a lot of people that live in Oklahoma, they like to eat, you know, I'm right there with them. And sometimes palpation is <laughs> not easy. And you know, what we used to call non-ultrasound or non-fluoro-guided procedures blinded. And and so then the uh, then those, that same group of people, they wanted to change it from blind to ultra to palpation guided. I'm like, you're just, you know, okay, it's still blind. So. 
If you don't know where you are, if you can't see where you are up on a screen, uh, you're, you don't know where you are. And that's, that's how I feel about it. And then I'll, I'll throw in one more caveat. If you can point to a screen and you know where you are and you have a patient sitting right there and I can say, that is your knee, that is right where they're going. That patient knows that they walk out of the room, that they, this thing went exactly where it's supposed to go. Placebo just jumped in there from the patient's viewpoint. And that's not necessarily a bad thing either. Whenever I'm like, I'm convinced now that this is going to work because I can see exactly where he's about to squirt it. You're going to have to get greater than 37%. That's the placebo number. 37% of the people think that everything works for them, you know, if you tell them. But just, but at any rate, most, all of my patients, I show them. Like even after an interventional pain procedure, I show them their pictures. If I do a kyphoplasty on somebody, I show them their picture. And when I'm doing an ultrasound on somebody, I'm explaining to them what I'm looking at. So they understand what they're looking at because, I, you know, the more engaged they are in knowing what's going on, when I have to give them their options or tell them what we need to do, it, it's not, you know, it's not a hard explanation. Patients should be skeptical. They should question. But when you can show it to them, it's, it takes a lot of the questioning out of it. I want to switch gears just for a second. Kyphoplasty. Mm-hmm. You know, where I work, we do. It's so funny. Sometimes, you know, the 30-year-old with some mild headaches, they don't refer to us. But they'll give us the 84-year-old who's got a scoliosis, two compression fractures, and they're like, here you go, chiropractor, good luck. And you're like, okay, um, <laughs> let's see what we can do. But once it's healed, it's been there for 10 years, that's it. Is, is kyphoplasty, when you're putting the bone semen in there, is that more of a fresh fracture only, or what's the criteria for that? Well, you just described an Oklahoma standard back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, when I go... When I go to conferences, sometimes if we're in a cadaver lab or doing something, someone will get someone who who's, has some scoliosis and they'll go, oh my God, I'm like, I mean, that to me, I'm like, that just looks normal. But yeah, you have somebody, you, you just, I mean, let's describe, I mean, you can describe how you want. You got, you know, 75 year old, you know, five foot one, 90 pound woman who was on a Meprazole for 25, 30 years and she's got a big kyphotic hump and she's got back pain. It never gets better, you know, and, and it just hurts and hurts and hurts. And you do an x ray. And it looks like all of her vertebral bodies look like disc when they're the vertebral bodies. And you're asking yourself, oh, my God, you know. Um, so the, one of my really good mentors believes I have several mentors that I, that I rely on that I talk to all the time. And they probably they tell me all the time, I'm not your mentor. You, you're very well. But I still like to call them my mentors because I, you know, I just I like to. But um, the, the mentality is that you do not treat a vertebral compression fracture that is not acute or shows signs of edema on an MRI. The only, pro- only problem is, is that you're leaving a lot of people out. And I may take a, I may get roasted on this, but you know, I've got, I've got some people to back me up on this, but if you have somebody that has an old chronic compression fracture and you palpate that area and it still hurts and you've, done everything around that vertebral body, whether you've, you've done a facet joint, you've done RF, and it still hurts. And we're not to the point where we can't do the basal vertebral nerve radiofrequency ablation yet because it's not approved. The best treatment of choice for that patient is to do a vertebral augmentation. And then what's also nice about that is to reestablish the vertebral body height with a really good vertebral, you know, uh, augmentation. And that's what you, and, you know, there is a downward spiraling of morbidity with chronic compression fractures. And I mean, it's just, you see it. And I mean, you literally see it. And I mean, I've had patients that were admitted to the hospital and never taken 
uh, pain medicine in their entire life and were in the hospital on you know, morphine pumps and PCA pumps, and I come in, I do a compression of a kyphoplasty, and I and I repair the appropriate levels. They walk out of the hospital, and they they, never, they probably don't take anything more than a Tylenol after that. So it's pretty dramatic when you get them like that. But then you get the gray areas, the ones that are chronic, the ones that you just described. They come in, they're very osteopenic, and now they want you to do a manipulation, and they've got like seven compression fractures. You're like, oh yeah, sure, yeah, I'll jump. Yeah. So. The thing is, and I just did one of these on Thursday uh, or just yesterday. A patient came in. He's actually seen the local chiropractor. The chiropractor did an X-ray, outlined the vertebral body. This the L1 was extremely compressed. He came to me and he said, "My, you know, my pain started there about six months ago and has never gone away. I pushed on it, still painful. The MRI did not show any edema. We repaired it and it's gone. And he's doing extremely well." And so there you go. And now that kind of goes against the the standard or the or the or the common belief. But you know, we're I think we're going to change that mentality pretty soon. If you have pain there at that level, uh, and and those types of levels and stuff like that, then you know you need to you know somewhat repair it. What's last resort? What else are you going to do? I mean, this person needs help, and that if that's the last thing available, it seems like try it and it's working. I mean, then, all right, well. Let the research catch up a little bit. I tell the patients, I say, look, here's the thing. You know, it's like when, and that and 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 that patient right there that you just described. If this patient wasn't so common, it would be a different thing. If this was an outlier, it'd be a different thing. These patients mm-hmm. these are extremely common. I mean, it's, this thing is extremely common, especially in rural parts of Oklahoma where I practice. Um, and they don't, you know, they're not even even in Oklahoma City or in Tulsa or in Dallas, and you know, I don't care where you are, Houston, wherever. You know, it's still common. And, and I always yeah. tell the patients, I say, look, you are tender there. You are painful there. That is where it hurts. I'm pushing right on where it hurts. If we never repair that and we don't repair that, then and we do everything else and you're still in pain, then we did all these other things when we know that that still could be causing you pain. So why not why not fix that? And so I'm getting yeah. away. I'm, I, I've kind of gotten away from the MRI being the only gold standard measurement on when to repair it when not to repair it why are you in three small towns instead of just the big city it's a really good question so i'm in i'm in for people that don't know i'm in lawton oklahoma which is south uh western oklahoma Uh, i'm also out just a little bit further west in McAllister and in salisaw i'm actually in other places that i still go to in in little surrounding areas but what i've done and what i've learned is there's I start when I finished my fellowship and I when I did I did sports medicine. So when I started out, I did not complete the traditional interventional pain management fellowship. And when I decided that I wanted I initially started out doing musculoskeletal medicine, focused mostly on, on ultrasound, and slowly but surely I, I gravitated over towards doing more interventional pain. So I went back and did and got retrained and did more training through American Board of Interventional Pain Physicians where I'm board eligible and I'm also involved in the World Institute of Pain. And what I when I got started, I, I started out in the rural parts of Oklahoma uh, because I just wanted to start a little slow. And what happened was it, it was like trying to drink water out of a fire hose. I mean, it just I mean, there was just an enormous amount of patients and you know and I set up shop and a lot and especially everybody that walked in that door they said we were so happy you're here we're glad you're here we don't have anybody like you you do everything you do every procedure and I wanted to tell them like, I do every I do more procedures that people in Oklahoma City and Tulsa do so 
And I mean, I just think it's a, it's, uh, there's not many people around. I'm sort of the big fish in the small pond and I love the referrals and I, you know, I love the feedback and, and I just stuck with it. And, and I, one of my big, big mentors is in Oklahoma city and he's trained me a lot and, done, and I've learned a lot from him. It, I just didn't want to go real close to him and, and, and be his competition. I didn't think it was fair. So that's, that's kind of a long answer, but it just really, it's just kind of, you know, I am where, where I got busy the quickest. I know you got uh, time. So just curious uh, real quick. I've heard a story. I was listening to a podcast. I want to say like Mel Gibson and his dad, they had some really bad issues. They flew to Panama mm-hmm. and they got like placenta, you know, placenta stuff. Like they're not like harvesting aborted babies or mm-hmm. anything. It's just they talk to these ladies. They have a certain thing that they're looking for. And he's like, dude, the results for himself and his dad, it's not allowed in America. Uh, do you know what I'm kind of talking about? Yeah, they're talking about really core. They're talking about cord blood. And it's kind of, again, that's, that's not, you know, that's not their own. That's someone else's. And the the mindset is, okay, so when you, when you're taking placental blood, the placental blood is thought or, or core blood itself is thought to be extremely rich in growth factors. And so they're taking very, very rich growth factors. Now here's the thing. Um, it, the best way I can explain this is is when you go up some when you go up to 100 people in a room and you say who wants a pizza, and 50 percent of the room say pepperoni, 10 percent say beef, 10 percent say cheese, and then everybody else some, some small groups say I want mine with pineapple, which I still don't understand that, but you know they 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 but my point is that they're they're all getting the same thing, they're just getting it differently. If you if you went you, and and that's sort of where someone's trying to describe our approach is better than your approach, but they can't they can't answer to that. I mean, they don't have the uh-huh. data to back that up and prove it. I mean, no one can tell you that if you didn't go down and concentrate or grow your own growth factors and grow your own con- uh, bone marrow concentrate that it wouldn't be better. And no, and there's not any physician in this world that could that can validate one is better than the other without data. So, and that's, that's a, you know, you would have to, what you have to do and you'd have to look at what they were injecting, what it was, what the cell counts were and all of those things. And, um, you know, Chris Santano out in, in Colorado and some of the other guys and you know, like guys like, like Don, they're looking at cell counts. They're not, they're not just injecting. So they're actually counting the cells and seeing what you're getting. And so, you, you know, that's where you, some things like in placental blood and things like that, you have no idea what you're getting. Now, this is going to be a crazy question. So just bear with me if it's the most dumbest thing. You're, you have a kid. You've got your own blood, you and your wife's blood right there. If you took that and spun it down and just injected it into an IV in somebody, wherever that blood goes, could it have a benefit? Like, why, don't, why aren't we just doing full body? Uh, you maybe have your own blood. You spin it down, you concentrate in it. Why don't we just inject it and... Wherever it goes, it lands and lands and gets better. You, uh, you, you pull his blood out of the highest growth factor concentrating person in the world, spin it down, get the highest, the richest, the most extreme end of growth factors. You start an IV, inject it into a vein. It's going to go through the right side of the heart to the lungs and stop. It'll never cross the, it'll never cross the alveoli. That's the mentality of doing pulmonary 
stem cell treatments and things of that nature. I, that's where that goes. That comes from is that you're injecting it into the blood. Now, a really good friend of mine who's a cell biologist who who lectures all the time uh, on the regenerative medicine market is is that why would you take something and concentrate it and then re-inject it back into your body and unconcentrate it? Because that's exactly what you just did, and he's right. You know, it's like, and he's right. He said that's like taking really good. It's it's like taking really strong tea and putting it in a glass of weak tea. You got it's just diluted. <laughs> yeah. So again, you know, I think the question in the, that you pose and the thought that you pose has started a lot of theories in in research. And so what you do is you take that theory and you take it and you go. And you and you go look at it from a research standpoint and the people that have done some of the best regenerative medicine research really in, in the world, again, are our vets are they take care of horses uh, because mm-hmm. they do, you know, you know, a lot, and I, I'm, I'm telling you, there's people that own thoroughbreds that race them and they race them around the world. They spend a lot of money on those horses. And so if something happens to them, they want to do the best thing possible. And the interesting thing is, is that when you're harvesting bone marrow concentrate from a horse, you take it from the sternum while they're standing up. I've seen that procedure done, and I ask myself, I can't imagine doing that on a regular patient. First of all, you wouldn't, but that's where the richest area of bone marrow concentrate or, or, or where the signaling cells come from is in the sternum. You can't do that in a human, but you can in a horse because the sternum is extremely thick in a horse. But, yeah, so that's it. Is there any – a lot of people have heart issues. So I'm not, when you said that, I'm thinking, would that be something that could benefit? And probably the research isn't there. If it just goes straight to your heart and lungs, well, there's a lot of people that have heart problems. Uh, it could be a good thing. Then. So I was listening – it could. I was listening to a hematologist one time talk a little bit about blood typing and things like that from regenerative medicine. Um, you know, I, I actually – you know, I live actually in Irving, Texas, and I fly up and do – so I'm a pilot too. So I actually fly to my clinic. <laughs> And, uh, and I was listening to a guy at UT Southwestern who's a hematologist said, you know, it's interesting. We spend a lot of time typing. We spend a lot of time typing and, and uh, bone marrow uh, transplants and, bi- and things of that nature. But it's interesting. You can go into some clinic in the middle of Dallas and somebody can inject anybody's blood in you and you have no idea whether it's compatible or not. The mindset is it's dead. It's been frozen. All the antibodies are taken off of it, which is true. But we're still not typing it. We're still not checking it. So it's hard to say. I mean, it's, you know, when you're, when you're pumping that in and it goes into the heart, it just pumps through. It, you know, it has to hit its target. So you have to think about the kinesiology of regenerative medicine, if you will. You're putting something in an area where the bone marrow will, will signal, it gets signaled that that's where growth factors need to go and heal that. So that's when, like, let's take a rotator cuff. Let's say somebody has a partial rotator cuff tear and you inject highly, highly concentrated mesenchymal signaling cells in that area, then the bone marrow will then release it signals to the bone marrow to come to that area to heal it. Now it's going to hurt. And there's a really good friend of mine that used to, in that, you know, that it does regenerative medicine in Kentucky named Paul Tortland. And he always says, you have to embrace the pain <laughs> because if you think about it, whenever you're regenerating something and you're healing something, you're you're bringing growth factors to that area. You're also bringing inflammatory cells, so it hurts. And that's one of the reasons why the you know the, the go home uh, message after you have a procedure for regenerative medicines don't go home and take an anti-inflammatory because you blunt the healing effects of of what you're doing. But yeah, ah. the prolos 
So it will hurt. Yeah, the prolotherapy guys, the guys have done a lot of prolotherapy for a long time. I've done some prolotherapy. Not, I mean, I'm talking about the guys who have done them for 20 to 30 years. Their, their way of knowing if it's working, which is sort of a low-end form of regenerative medicine, their way of knowing it's working is if you come back and you're in pain, more pain, because you've got more, you have more inflammation coming to that area. Chiropractor, physical therapy, I'm assuming that's probably where you get a lot of referrals, I would, I would hope. In that triple dynamic, me, you, them, when should we refer to you and when do you see a patient first and say, you know what, you should go try something else before you come to me? So I think you have to look at what, what I do specifically. I mean, what I do is, is, is pretty absolute. I don't do a lot of epidural steroid injections. I don't do a lot of ESIs. I do some. I mean, I do them for if the guidelines kind of, you know, warrant it. If you have radicular pain, disc compression, um, and it's you're getting shooting pain down your leg and it's hurting, uh, then you know you could be a good candidate for an ESI if you you know something along those lines. That's 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 that procedure. But things like is somebody with radio frequency, somebody with a compression fracture, somebody with you know knee pain or, or, or chronic pain, they don't want surgery and it really hurts. Uh, those are the kinds of patients that I really need to see. And then there's the specialty things like uh, you know somebody who's got chronic regional pain syndrome. Uh, some type of bad peripheral neuropathy, maybe they're diabetic, really bad peripheral neuropathy, and it's not getting any better. We could talk about a stimulator. And it really, you just reverse engineer it. What are the proced- What are the things that I do, which I do just about every procedure, and think about what it is that I do and think what that is an indication for, and that's when you refer it. Um, my goal, like any physical therapist, like any chiropractor, is to try to keep somebody from having surgery. Um, when somebody has surgery, I mean, I would feel really bad as a specialist that there was a diagnosis of failed back surgery syndrome named after what I do. Uh, and I get it to a certain extent when we have patients in those situations. Um, you know, I, to- I completely get it. I think if everybody is with the mindset of working together and just saying and calling up the phone, I have, I have, I have a few chiropractors in Lawton and in some in, in McAllister and Salas and other areas. You know, they'll just shoot me a text. They'll say, hey, I got this patient. You know, is this something you see? And I think when you get a relationship with somebody who does interventional pain management or all the things that I do, if you can get that relationship with that person where you can just ask them and say, hey, I don't know if this is your thing or not, but if somebody's not getting better with what I'm doing, whether you're doing, you know, like you, you got somebody with just bad SI joint pain, they come in for an SI joint manipulation, they get off the table and they're raising you up on their Christmas list, you're number one on their Christmas list for that year. They come in every four or five, six months, whatever. So that that's your patient until it doesn't work. But if it keeps, if it, if you do it, it never gets better. And they come back, keep coming back a week later. We, it just never gets better. That's when you start thinking about, okay, let's let's kick this up and see if there's somebody you know like me that can take care of it. Should we recommend well, like what you do before an epidural? Because the studies that we see, this, the stuff that we hear, is like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But you can get almost the same results from manipulation based on some of these studies out there, you know, so you don't, it's kind of like flipping a coin and if you went this route versus you go that route. Should we try to avoid the steroid injections and just kind of do more of like a PRP or does it come down to like finances a little bit? Well, obviously finances is always going to play a role because PRP is not covered from insurance. But, you know, you know, the indication for an ESI, you know, uh, Nikolai Bogdok, Dr. Bogdok had a, uh, in 2012, put out a really good paper on indications and, and the point of doing an ESI. ESIs really are, are beneficial to somebody who has radicular pain 
with or without, you know, obviously if you don't see it on MRI, but they've got radicular shooting pain. It's very specific. And then you inject that area. And uh, with a series of three of those injections, the gold standard of improvement is if you get 50% pain relief for six months or more. Now, that doesn't sound great, but, you know, taking somebody from a 10 to a 5 may be great. Taking somebody from a 5 to a 2 or from an 8 to a 4, there it is. But if you don't have radicular pain and you don't have it on MRI and you don't have it symptomology, you don't have it on physical exam, doing an ESI on somebody, and there's a lot of interventional pain guys that will consider say, well, let's just do an ESI to see if you get better. Like, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you've got degenerative joint disease in the facets and you've got degenerative disc disease, you've got just degenerative change and you inject, you know, 10 milligrams of Decadron in somebody and it reduces their inflammation, they're going to feel better for about a week or two. They're going to feel better because you just pumped a bunch of steroids in them. You didn't pump it in, you know, for what it's point or what it's, what, or what it's meant for. And remember this, an ESI, the, the use of steroids in ESI is an off-label use. It's not an indication for steroids. It's off- what are your feelings about that? I mean, it's off-label. Isn't that, that's not like a violation of some sort? I mean, obviously not. If somebody comes to me, they're a younger person, and I get, I get this, you know, we get this, like, these are the majority that I'll do an ESI on. So if somebody comes to me and, and they have a disc herniation that's causing nerve root compression, and they're in pain, and they are trying to see if they can avoid surgery. And the goal is, okay, we're going to do an ESI, whether we do it transfermally or interlaminary or however we're going to do it. And we're going to try to see if we can decompress that disc um, with the steroid. And I always put a little bit of lidocaine in there to do the nerve root block to make sure I'm in the right area. And they get benefit, and they get a great amount of benefit, and they don't have surgery, great. But if somebody comes in, now this is, this is real common, if somebody comes in, and they're a little bit older, and they got facet joint degenerative change, and you know they're a little hesitant about wanting to come in and see me because they've quote unquote had all these injections that never worked. And I'm trying to explain to them, well, I'm not doing those injections. I'm going to try to diagnose a different problem because this is where your problem is. That's when ESIs really get under my skin because that means that somebody was just doing a bunch of ESIs just to kind of crank them out and. You know, there's a lot of people out there that do epidural steroid injections. Not a lot of them are interventional pain doctors. There's a fair amount of them that aren't interventional pain doctors, and that's just kind of an act. You know, some of them will do them just to try to prove somebody needs surgery, and sometimes that procedure gets abused a lot. If you follow that guideline and that procedure fairly closely for the points, I mean, if, if you've got pretty good reasoning for why you do it and you can justify it, I think it's a good procedure. But if you're doing it just to say, well, no one else, nothing else works, so let's try this, even though you don't have the indication for it, I disagree with doing it for that purpose. I like that. I like how you always talk about like guidelines. That's one thing that I like about the, the medical profession is y'all have had so much trials and errors, and this is the best practices, and you can actually do that. Do you want to be an in insurance? If they started covering this, I mean, would you you're even want about, to do that? Um, for- PRP, the radio frequency, well, I mean, it's all like kind of cash and it's kind of nice not you know, to deal so, with it. You know, it. All neuromodulation, radio frequency, whether it's peripheral, whether it's uh, spinal cord simulator, all that, you know, all that is covered by insurance. Regenerative medicine, whether it's PRP or stem cells, is not covered by insurance. And, you know, and again, and, you okay, know, we kind of we were talking about it earlier. If somebody comes in and they have an issue, like, let's say it's someone who's younger and they got a disc, 
or they got a facade or they got something along those lines. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, you would be a good candidate for a PRP injection or, or, or something along those lines. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say, but that's not covered by insurance. And what I do is, I mean, I, 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 like I said, I try to gauge the patient. I don't try to, I'm not trying to just hit them as hard as I can. I mean, that's, you know, that's not, you know, you, you see people trying to market for regenerative medicine. And, and I think when you say you're trying to increase your revenue for your practice, that's not the mentality you need to have when you're doing regenerative medicine. You need to think, come up with other ways to make people better that didn't work in other areas. Okay. I like that. I don't like, let me find, let me show you how you can make $10,000 more a month in your practice. That's not the right idea. If it is expensive, we all have high deductibles these days. Maybe you might need two or three shots that year. You're like, hey, I paid for one out of pocket practically. But then the next one in the next area, now insurance is covering it. This is a great thing. I'm out of pain. More people are being helped. And let's face it, you'll be busy as well. And you end up making more money anyway. So it's kind well, of nice you, to see that. Insurance has gotten really interesting you know, lately. You know, I'll tell you, it's, you know, in the United States, everyone really is, everyone it just just loses their mind over nationalized health care. Now, granted, you got to be able to pay for it. So, I mean, you know, look at England, look at Canada, look at some of these places, they have nationalized medicine and, you know, some, some of those guys, they can't pay for it. So that, that's a problem. If you have nationalized health care and all of a sudden you can't pay for it, like Social Security, you can't pay for it in the country, basically, and things like that, that's a big issue. But you have somebody who has private insurance and, you know, I mean, I had a, I had a patient, had a really good candidate, a really good patient that wanted a peripheral nerve simulator and he has an insurance payer that wouldn't cover it and he's paying out of pocket for it. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, it's a lot more expensive than what a bone marrow concentrate or a PRP injection would have cost him. Not from me, but from the, but from the, uh, manufacturer and they're cutting him a really good deal when they're selling it to him. And with that being said, I mean, in some of these deductibles that people have five and $7,000 deductibles, my question is, well, I mean, it's almost like you're not even having insurance at that point. I mean, you're already paying, you know, you're paying $400 a month more just to, just for your deductible and you're paying, and you're probably still paying another eight, $900 a month for your insurance. Insurance has gotten really, really difficult from a, from a payer standpoint. So, and, and really from a provider standpoint too, but you know, I don't know where that's going to go, but I try to have that conversation with people and I just, I don't try to think of insurance as a barrier for what I present to them as the best option for them. Um, I probably would have considered that 10 years ago, but today I don't think that way because so much of these policies are, are out of whack, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Well, how can people get in touch with you, your website, all that type of stuff? So um, you can get in touch with me at acellortho.com. It's A-C-E-L-L ortho.com. And that has my main office number. Of course, obviously, you can always uh, get in touch with me on LinkedIn or, or like the ways most people get in touch with me and stuff like that. I'm usually pretty responsive on LinkedIn. Um, the, uh, but, yeah, that's, that's usually the easiest way. I'm on Facebook as well. But, and I try to stay pretty active on, on that. But, but generally speaking, you know, the, the – the numbers through the, the, you know, all the, you know, my email address is on, on my website. If you need to contact me directly, got a question about any things that we talked about today or want to know a little bit more. I do a lot of teaching. Uh, so I like doing that. Um, and so, and I, I answer a lot of people's questions that, you know, some of the stuff I put up on LinkedIn, 
Uh, some people will ask me how, what approach did you use? How'd you do? How'd you do that? And I usually try to hit them back, you know, give them. Cause I like, to, I mean, I don't, I, I think it's important to do things correctly and right. So if somebody's interested in, in, in how I'm doing something, I have no problems answering that. Anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about real quick? No, I think you really, I think you really hit on it. You know, it's, um, I think the only thing I would probably say extra is that this is a really exciting time for interventional pain management. Um, you know, regenerative medicine, neuromodulation, doing things minimally invasive is really where things are headed and it's really growing. Uh, my biggest thing is, is, uh, you know, I think we're, we're finally getting away from just operating on everybody and, you know, and, and I think finding other options and alternatives to doing that is, is a really, you know, nice thing to do. And that's really what we should be thinking about. Dr. Brian Rich, great episode. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us and enlightening us, educating us, and figuring out, helping us to figure out what PRP is, what neuromodulation is, and when we should refer. Really big thank you for that. You got it. It was good talking to you. I enjoyed it. I really want to take a second and say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you haven't left a review on your favorite listening app, please go ahead and do that. One thing I've realized, I've been putting out a lot of links all over Instagram, Facebook, this podcast itself and if you ever change the link or shut the website down all those links are now gone and dead so i just want you to know if you're listening to some of these episodes and i mentioned a link and it's gone just head on over to a doctorsperspective.net and you're probably gonna find that thing you're looking for on the top menu search around and i'm sure you'll find it all the books you can find there acupuncture book with no needles the free chapters you can download the 360 degree health from exercises, stretches, financial health, what is chiropractic, and the free chapters over there. T-shirts, resources, and we even have a financial support site now. It's just a doctorsperspective.net slash support. There's one-time support. There's monthly support. Go ahead over there and check it out. Something that I'm offering right now with the needless acupuncture, if you buy the book, you also get the electric acupuncture pin for free as a bonus. And that electric acupuncture pin helps you not only stimulate the points stronger, that helps you locate the points as well. So that's a huge plus. And then with the uh, Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health book, I'm offering a bonus of a uh, one-hour, one-on-one uh, coaching session to go along with the purchase of that book. Actually, there's three different bonus packages if you head to a doctorsperspective.net slash no needles. It's getting close to the end of the year. Are y'all ready for the 2018 top 10? I mean, it's too early right now, but it's going to be here before you know it. That will be available for download later on, just like the 2017 is now. You just heard a great guest. Implement one thing. Make your practice and personal life as best as it can be.